afternoon and good evening, wherever and whenever you may be, and welcome to episode 96 of the Fade to Black podcast. I'm Hannah Flint. I'm Clarice Lockery. And I'm Amon Woman. This week, I talk to Darren Aronofsky about his Oscar contender, The Whale, and we review his latest drama too. We pay a visit to M. Night Shyamalan's latest apocalyptic thriller, Knock at the Cabin, follow a dramatic court case in Saint-Omer, and Clarice talks to Harvey Gillen about his new role in Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, which we review too. Meanwhile, in our hot take, DC man, they've dropped. They've dropped a load of load of announcements, loads of movies, load of TV shows in their latest slate. Whew, lots to get into there. But first, how's everyone... Doing, Amon, what's going on? Nice scarf. <laughs> it's not a scarf, it's actually a towel. Sometimes, when I'm, especially in these cold days and nights, I just wrap a warm towel around my neck. It's the best feeling. I highly recommend it. Feels great. Feels great. Um, what have I been so up to? So, wait, what? Honestly. What? So, do you put it in a tumble dryer and then get it out? Do you leave it on a radiator? No, no, no. It's then... just, I've got a heater right, right next to me. Just got to this it's on so just like a warm towel around you. And trust me, it works. It's it's brilliant. Um Amon, <laughs> trendsetter for twenty twenty three. Warm towels around your neck. Can I say? What can I say? Honestly, I cannot wait. The most exciting thing uh on this pod to me is our discussion of Puss in Boots. I'm obsessed with this movie. I've been listening to the soundtrack pretty much all the time since I saw the screen, since, since, since I was at the screening a, a few days ago. Um, so I can't wait to get into it. Uh, the, 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 the Fearless Hero song, which you guys know because you've seen the film, has been stuck in my head. It's so great. So yeah, I'm just, I'm just pumped. I'm just pumped to, to talk to you guys about it. Clarice, are you also mm-hmm. pumped? I'm very pumped to talk about it. Um, and the little dog little perito <laughs> who lifts his shirt and goes rub my belly um that was quite obviously my favorite part of the movie um and uh can we do a quick non-spoiler last of us update because the, 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 the episode <laughs> the episode came out <laughs> yes, did. <laughs> I, I i watched it too i'm you guys have seen everything and i'm just doing it like as yeah. as Evergreen would say, I'm watching it with the peasants. <laughs> <laughs> with the muggles. Uh, I'm watching it weekly. And wow. Oh, my God. Nick Offerman, man. I love that guy. He also has the yeah. best giggle. He does. Yeah. He does. It's yeah. so pure. Like, he's no. so... He can flip between, like, men who I would believe could kill a bear to like the sweetest little guy within seconds and it's beautiful and I love him I feel like this is like Parks you know Parks and Recreation where it's like Ron Swanson I feel like his character Bill in The Last of Us is basically like oh this is how I imagine Ron would handle like an apocalypse because he's also super (laughs) (laughs) anti-government and he knows he's a survivalist as well like this feels like the natural progression of Ron it's the same universe. I want to believe it's in the same universe. And Ron Swanson's like, well, him and April would be the only ones who would survive. Everyone else is gone, unfortunately. I really should watch Parts of Rec, shouldn't I? The, 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 the show which I'm finally catching up with right now is Battlestar Galactica, uh, which, is, which is a lot of fun. I'm enjoying it. Um, 
Big yes, Iraq I... War uh, <laughs> metaphor, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It is. I'm, I'm, I'm season three, episode 10 right now. Um, the the uh, Admiral, Admiral Adama is still the GOAT. He is my favorite character. <laughs> He's just leadership. I, I can't, I've said it many times before. There are very few things I enjoy watching on screen more than good leadership. And Admiral Adama, at least for the moment, is a very good leader. Uh, but back to The Last of Us. It's January 31st as we record this. I feel confident in saying that Last of Us Episode 3 will have the best strawberry scene out of anything we see this year. That's fair. (laughs) (laughs) Thinking about all the potential strawberries that might come and scream. Maybe in the Barbie film. Grogu. Grogu. Yeah, true. In the Mandalorian. You think he'll, you know, He's, 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 he's got a macaroon obsession right now. You think, you think there's going to be strawberries in the new season? Do they saying? have strawberries in a galaxy far, far away? Sure. Why not? <laughs> they, why the fuck not? They have the pincer movement, which I thought was hilarious in Andor. Pincer movement is such a specifically, like, like human, like, back in a day, Carthaginian leaders, like, such a war move, move that's so this earth. They even mentioned it in, uh, what's it yes. called? In um, Tenet. <laughs> oh, yes. So when they Tenet, popped up with the yeah. pins. It's a movement. When they talked about a pins movement, I, mean, I was like, which galaxy is this? <laughs> right, they also have macaron, which is like a highly specific French <laughs> dessert. <laughs> Just somehow made its way into Grogu's hands. So I feel mm. like anything is possible with Star Wars. <laughs> I'm waiting for like a big gulp to turn up. <laughs> Some <laughs> like a Dunkin' yes. Donuts or something. Get Ben Affleck yes. in a galaxy far, far away. Okay. Oh my god, it's Dunkin'. <laughs> I love Duncan. it. His Dunkin'. I love it. Okay. Well, enough of that. Let's get into it. Here is the trailer for The Whale. I know these rules can feel constraining, but remember, the point of this course is to learn how to write clearly and persuasively. Think about that. Think about the truth of your argument. You're an amazing person, Ellie. I couldn't ask for a more incredible daughter. Are you actually trying to parent me right now? Who would want me to be a part of their life? You don't stay in touch with mom? She really only tells me things about you. Why? Because that's all I want to know about. Hello? Is it Herman Melville you're looking for? Uh, That's a very specific uh, reference to the well. Uh, It is Darren Aronofsky's uh, latest. Uh, It's based on a play uh, written by Samuel D. Hunter, uh, who also wrote the screenplay for this. It centers on Charlie, who lives in a town in Idaho. He's a reclusive and unhealthy English teacher who hides out in his flat and eats his way to death. He is desperate to reconnect with his teenage daughter, for a last chance at redemption. Uh, it stars Brendan Fraser in the lead role, Sadie Sink, Hong Chow, Ty Simpkins, and Samantha Morton. Um, so before we get into our review, I spoke to Darren himself. And it's interesting because this this is a film that's um, been quite controvers- controversial. Um, a lot of people have so many feelings about it. And, you know, I tried... To, I, I, I took the opportunity to try and talk uh, 
to Darren about a few of those issues when it comes to the representation of like disordered eating, certain, um, I suppose, cinematic techniques he used to show the way uh, Charlie eats and also talk about, you know, beliefs in general, religion. It's Darren Aronofsky. There's always some sort of religious element to it. Uh, so here is that chat. Enjoy. So welcome, Darren Aronofsky, to the Fate of Black podcast. Um, Thank how are you? you? You're in. How are you finding London? Are you freezing your knackers off? <laughs> no, I love London. I actually love the cold. I've I, I've come. You know, I'm about all about chasing the ice. I love the ice. There we go. Well, you perfect timing to be here. Um, yeah. So I, I was I was re I was uh, I I saw an interview you did the other day, and I, something really struck me about um, something like you said you like stories more than beliefs. And I, I really, I really relate to that because I feel like, I mean, I saw this movie Dogma. I don't know if you saw the movie Dogma, but there's a line in it where Chris Rocker, it's a Kevin Smith movie. And he says, he's like the 30th apostle. And he goes, the minute you turn ideas into beliefs, people do bad things in them. And I feel like that's kind of very much informed my way, my understanding of religion. And so bringing it back to the whale and obviously a lot of your work that concerns it, I suppose like how you know, how, how much meaning, how, how much is that important to kind of get that sort of thing across in your work to say, actually, like, let's break these things down um, and see how that informs motivations negatively in people's lives? Yeah, I guess um, there's was there's so much honesty in Sam's writing that um, I kind of had a certain amount of faith in his... Um, in like his underlining message because it just made me feel in such a deep way the first time I was exposed to the material that I I don't know it was kind of a it was it was kind of an honor to um to to be given permission to kind of bring it to life and to um bring it to to uh to bring actors to it and to um, just turn it into a movie. Um, but um, I, I think that's kind of uh, what I was chasing was this kind of kernel of goodness and optimism that Sam has in all of his writings. Um, but it was just so clear in the well in such an unexpected way that um i was inspired uh every day to um play with his words mm. um i i i think there's something about um finding meaning and and connection i love the fact that there's um you know he's an english teacher it's like what does moby dick how does it make you feel and how we can all there's work can be put in the world and then we put ourselves into it um yeah. you know navigating that as well with the kind of like now people are like watching your work is there kind of like I suppose is there an expectation of what you want people to take from it and then I suppose I suppose surprise and wonder and what people interpret from the art that you've created that you might not have you know recognized or thought about when you're initially kind of bringing it all together what's more interesting to me is how many people end up getting and receiving kind of the intention of the project um that that always amazed me from from the beginning when i first started making movies with a, a, a bizarre movie pie 
uh, I would meet people all over the world and they would sort of understand what I was trying to do. And I think um, largely for the for the large part of the audiences, they're really feeling such a deep way. The same experience I had when I first saw the material, um, just overwhelmed with um, the sadness in the piece, but also the inspiration that uh, this character gives you, this this kind of blind faith in humanity, which I feel like right, right now, after um, the kind of two-year pandemic that totally separated us from each other, that um, any forces that are making us try to come back together and find a common decency of and a, com a common notion of respect is all good. I think with the way I watch films and where I come to my like criticism, it's always from a place of empathy because I always, what had you know, how does it make me feel about things, and that's how I connect to them. And you know, watching yeah. watching this film as someone who's had issues with disordered eating myself, I find it. I found it really, I really connected with the way that actually disordered eating is a psychological issue. Um, and I find it interesting to juxtapose that with Black Swan, where there's a different element of disordered eating and also representing a side of that where it's not just the slim anorexic kind of type of thing. Um, you know, that, that's, that's a delicate thing to present. And I suppose I'd love to know a bit more about how you kind of not just of, of course, you've got the text, but then it's also like, how do you represent that? How do you show that? And I suppose the yeah. decision you made and how you wanted to receive. Yeah. Well, we did team up with a great organization, the OAC, the Obesity Action Coalition, which has, I think, tens of thousands of members of people who have lived with obesity, who are living with obesity. And they had a wealth of knowledge for us. Um, and we brought them on early in the process to look at the screenplay. They were there to see the film before it was finished and give feedback. Um, and I think, look, everyone struggles with food in some way. And I, I don't think it's, it's not commonly said, but everyone kind of has weird food, food issues of some sort. Of course, some become really extreme and they overwhelm certain lives and they can destroy many lives. Um, but the thing I loved so much about Requiem for a Dream um, a film that was really about addiction and that that was the main focus is that what Selby did is he showed that hard drug addiction is not that different than um, food addiction and, and, and the addiction of wanting to lose weight. Um, and that the, the kind of chemistry that's going on in someone's brain and the psychology that's going on in the brain, that, that kind of loop, that language um, is really related. And, and, and not only that, it's actually related to so much. It's such a deep part of the human condition is that possibility of getting into some type of a loop. I mean, Selby so beautifully describes just like the eating of a piece of chocolate um, by his character, Sarah Goldfarb, the, the kind of mental psychology of that is the same as trying to quit cigarettes. Um, and so I think... When you have um, a, a piece of writing that come, comes from someone who has gone down a really dangerous path with food and they're presenting it, it's it's not 
very, very distant from almost anyone. If you kind of are a sensitive reader to kind of connect with that character and feel it. And, and, and then to try to bring that to an audience is not hard. It's not, it's not hard. It's just about trying to be honest and truthful um, in your own understanding of it. And I don't know, it's, it's been interesting. It's like, there is that sequence in the film where he's um, where, where Charlie is overeating to hurt himself. And it's very, very painful for people. And I think that's as much about watching someone you've come to love and respect uh, than anything else. So, uh, I mean, this is the thing, you can't go cold turkey when it comes to food. You can't be like, all right, I'm not gonna eat anymore. That's the difficulty of it, you've always got to eat. I feel it's interesting though, from the beginning- Although season, some I people, some people try not to. I mean, sadly, yeah. I've, I've been exposed to that. And there are people that try to restrict and they go on long fasts of food without food and water. And yeah. I've been exposed to people that are dealing with that problem and it's terrible too. So yeah. it's very complicated. I, I thought Sorry to interrupt. No, 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 please. No, you're, you're right. It's that's the difficulty of it. It's such a fine line of like overeating, undereating. And like, again, um, you know, it's interesting because when from the first bite that he takes, there is a quite, you, you, you basically, you kind of up the volume a bit about it. And I suppose there's also, I felt like this is also kind of like a horror element to it. And I suppose I'd love to know a little bit more about that. Cause obviously like eating is not, you have to eat, but I suppose it, it came across to me that like, this was, you wanted to make it clear that this was like, he's really killing himself here. Well, it's part of his character. It's just written into the character is that he's using, he's not getting any joy from food or very, very little. It's really just about um, hurting himself, sadly. But um, I don't know if it was really horror. I think that's the way people kind of take it. There's no, um, it, it's just terribly sad. Uh, and it break, it broke my heart when I saw it on the stage. And um Clearly, Sam, uh, my writer, was um, sharing some of his own personal story. And that's kind of, I think, what made it so vibrant. Mm. And I suppose it is really difficult. One film cannot represent everything at once. No, this know? is and to that's be the clear, difficulty of it. Yeah, I mean, to be clear, this is one person's story. And that's people kind of forget that it, it's not like we're making a statement about every single person. You know, when I did pie, I made it about this math genius and that's not about everyone who works in math. I'm not making a statement that everyone in math is crazy. When I did Requiem for a dream, it, it's just the story of four characters and their trip. Every film is a singular story. And this is Charlie's story. If, if, if it's any one story, it's kind of a, 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 a personalized fiction from Sam's own life but it's it's so it's his story and it's his creation but there are so many different people living so many other realities to to kind of assume that we're trying to make a blanket statement about about anything is just not I mean it's just unfair um, I, I think that's, you know, and this is why these, why I love cinema. It just broaches so many conversations and creates so many stories and hopefully, you yeah. know, hopefully more people come out of it. Um, I suppose my final thing, cause I think I have to let you go. Um, I know that you hadn't really watched Brendan Fraser's early 
90s work. No. I wondered, <laughs> have you Still watched them it. now? What? Why? No, no. Not... <laughs> Are you refusing to watch any of it? <laughs> no, no, no. It's not that. I imagine if Encino no Man's on the plane when I fly back to New York, I'll watch it. But um, I think Brendan's fine with me skipping it. I did watch School Ties during post-production, and it was great fun. I really enjoyed it. It was a very moving picture. Uh, but no, I still haven't seen them. I'm, I'm sad to say. You just need like a rainy day and then just like yeah, get exactly. no man out. Although I love, I think what I love about this, him doing this role, and though I do, I personally, I do, I think there is a conversation about, you know, fat suits and that sort of thing, you know, but um, I, I find the fact that, you know, I think about um, of Gods and Monsters and think that actually as much as there are these kind of, you know, silly comedy roles there's so he's like a really deep and soulful actor that's come out in different ways yeah. and I, I i really relish the opportunity to see brendan be able to do this so you know thanks for giving him that chance <laughs> thank you thank you thank you thank you for thank you for doing this it's really nice to meet you can i ask was he wearing a scarf i don't think he was <laughs> oh, he's a changed man i don't think i've ever seen him without a scarf this is shocking <laughs> no maybe i need to look back at the scene maybe you, i don't believe oh he was wearing god. a scarf okay. oh my god my belief has been rattled <laughs> so the whale where do okay i suppose where do we sit with darren aronofsky at this point uh amon yeah i'm not the biggest darren aronofsky fan but there are a couple of films of his that I have really enjoyed, and they are The Wrestler and Black Swan. Um, I thought those were great. Uh, his two more recent movies before The Whale, Noah and Mother, not the biggest fan of. Um, so, so yeah, mixed bag. I think Mother and Black Swan are the like two of the greatest on-screen representations of anxiety that I've ever come across. Like, I was kind of floored by each of them. Like, Mother is a panic attack, just on film. And so I I will always respect him for that, because I really love those movies. Um, so yeah, I would say, I'm, I'm Team Aronofsky. Let's go. <laughs> I, it's so funny, you mentioned Mother. There's a bit in this in the movie that, you're so right about anxiety because there's this bit where they're like, she's like, Jennifer Lawrence just keeps saying, don't sit there. It can't support the weight. It can't in the kitchen. She's like, yes, don't sit there. And it's so stressful. Just think it is brace. And it's like, and I was feeling it. It's most, one of the most stressful scenes. It's like up there with like uncut, uncut jams. It's like there for me is like, when I think of anxiety, I think of that moment. Um, yeah. And I would say I actually, you know, I really enjoy Black Swan, even though I think there's, it, I, 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 I got what he was doing with it, even though there's some things that when you look at it in a different way, it's like, ooh, it's, I don't know, very male filmmaker doing this sort of film. Um, and actually, I think there's a parallel, and I, I spoke in the interview about a parallel between Black Swan and The Whale, because they're both two representations of disordered eating at different ends of the spectrum. And I suppose let's get into the extremities of the whale. You know, as we know, there's a lot of discussion about um, how obesity is represented in this. And I will say it is quite refreshing to have um, disordered eating shown in a way where it's not someone who's anorexic because, you know, most of the time it is always that situation. So 
to have that shown through Charlie. Um, Clarice, the story as it's been told and and what it's trying to get at, what it's trying to get at and empathy, how do you feel it kind of um, presented Charlie as, you know, the protagonist, but also someone who's quite, you know, self-destructive, but also quite loving? How do you, how do you think it bal- balanced that at, that kind of, how do you think it balanced what it was trying to do, have the empathy, but also showing the kind of horror of what this disordered eating can do to a person. I, funny enough, I was thinking about Blonde while watching this movie, about, for me, what both those movies share is that they get one essential psychological, emotional aspect of those stories so right that I'm kind of willing to be a little more forgiving towards them. Um, I mean, Blonde, it was the the sort of, like, uh, post-traumatic stress of child abuse. I think here it's the specific way that it shows um, binge eating as a form of self-harm that I feel like is so rare to see on film, and I think the lack of it um, does kind of contribute to a lot of negative stereotyping around the disorder um because i think anorexia people understand like okay yeah it's like it's self-harm it's somebody wanting to hurt their body to control it and um this film is very good at showing that binge eating is the same that it's this like a hundred percent emotional state that when he eats large, large amounts of food, he is trying to hurt himself because of the pain that he suffered in uh, his past life. And I was really struck by that because it, the film's very honest about it. Um, but I then I struggle because I think there's lots of things around it that just didn't work for me. And maybe it's a case... I don't really know the playwright, Samuel D. Hunter, very well. I feel like the problems I have with it stem from the play. And I don't know whether he's speaking from a place of personal experience, but there's something that feels like distant about it because he is sort of weirdly objectified. And I don't mean that in a sexual sense, but like there's a sense that he's this like thing that we're looking at and we're going, oh my God, this is what disorder eating does to you. Instead of us really, really getting into to his life. And there are so many scenes of, like tragedy of like bad things happening to him he he gets up and he falls over and he has heart attacks and I think the audience is meant to be like so oh you know oh pity 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 this guy I I think I would have preferred the movie a lot more if I really got a sense of just like a day-to-day day when nothing was happening you know Mm. because there's always like shit happening in this story there's always some dramatic thing happening to him that it it does feel a little, yeah, objectifying. And I, again, I mean that in like the non-sexual sense. I can't find a better word, but you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. I agree with you on the authenticity of the self-destructive habits that we see on screen. I thought that can do very well. As far as the empathy side of it, this movie does not work without Brendan Fraser's performance. And I feel like that is where the empathy came from and that, shine through the fat suit on pretty much for pretty much the entire movie I thought he was fantastic and 
it was very much needed for the character and for the movie for that performance to be as good as it is. Um, that's where the empathy came from for me, and I absolutely felt that. Mm-hmm. I, I definitely think there's, <clears throat> and I suppose this may be a thing in in Aronofsky's work, but it's kind of like the um, the martyr, but flawed, a flawed martyr, basically. Because it does seem like Charlie all the way through is this like martyr. He's like doing this because he cares so much and he's constantly a punching bag for seemingly everyone around. And as you say, Clarice, there's no sense of like, everything is so destructive. Everything that he does is so painful. I, I would have loved just to have a moment. I. I, I suppose one of my issues is like every time he eats, it's always seen as like, oh my God, like this is, he's killing it himself. And it's like, but eating, I get you can use that in a in certain ways, binge eating as someone who's gone through like that, who had bulimia, who's, you know, still living with like going for that binge purge cycle. But there are times where you just eat and it's like, fine, you know, you're eating and it's normal. Not everything needs to be this, um, the way that, um, you know, intensifying the kind of slurping, you know, the first time we see him eat something is like eating like Kentucky fried chicken or something. It's like, they really ham it up. He's getting it all over his face. And it's like, I get he's like killing himself, but not every time you put something, food in your mouth is about killing yourself. It's actually just a normal human thing. And I suppose if it had that bit more balance, it would, it would have, it would have made me feel like the writing had more, like more empathy for the character than what is presented. But I do think you're right, Amon, like if if Brendan Fraser wasn't such, um, didn't have such um, uh, expressive eyes and that kind of are so kind, there's a kindness that he imbues, that he mm. radiates even beyond that, that it's kind of, he's not, you know, you're kind of invested in Charlie. Um, I'd love to like broaden it out though. And let's talk about, you know, the rest of the cast. Um, because again, and also the characterizations of, of them. I mean, I think, you know, Hong Chow, Sadie Sink, Samantha Morton. Mm. For me, these women are phenomenal in the film. Um, I was about to call you Charlie. <laughs> Clarice. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> it's the scene. Um, Clarice, you know, how is it having these characters around who actually, you know, I, 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 I like them a lot. Maybe they could have been a, certainly for Hong Chow, for her character Liz. I kind of wish there was a little bit more than just being like the best friend. But what was your take? Yeah, I think I I do wish there was more from some of those characters. Some of the writing didn't hit right for me and it felt, I could feel like the boundaries of the theatre in this movie because... There are some things there are some things that work better on stage in terms of emotional exaggeration and a couple of the characters are pushed to extremes where I I sort of stopped believing <laughs> in them. I think especially Sadie Sink as Charlie's daughter. Mm. Um it's a really tough role because she's playing a very like kind of bratty teenager who is obviously as we learn like hiding a lot of emotional pain and that's what's making her so aggressive. But some of the early scenes, I was like, this is a this is a bit much. And I know Sadie Sink is great because I've seen Stranger Things. <laughs> She's really good in that show. She's fantastic in that I'm show. I'm surprised that I it took think... you this long to mention Stranger we gotta, Things. Like, we I gotta thought this was going to be like... <laughs> I mean, like, 
low-key i kind of thought she was better in stranger things because it's sort of a similar character but max has a lot more layers to her and i feel like yeah my biggest complaint with the movie is there is a bit of a 2d quality to everyone's emotional journey but i still thought everyone was phenomenal like i think the performances are still bringing are still finding the truth of the scene even when it's maybe not quite there in the writing <laughs> yeah i i thought sadie sink was great um I did prefer the scenes where she's less of a brat than when she start, she starts off at like maximum brat level. Um, but those scenes where we actually get to see the conversations between her and her father and her father, Brendan Fraser, try and encourage her and you see the veneer of sort of brattiness begin to fade a little bit. Those scenes I thought were really, really great. Um, and yeah, that's the great tragedy of that Charlie character in that he can see so much potential for his daughter and he wants to live for his daughter, but he doesn't see it for himself. Um, and that's the storyline for me. It really, it really spoke to me. I like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I think what you're saying, Clarice, is kind of bordered on caricature and certain elements of it. It's like, oh God, these are, but I do, I think one thing I, I did think they kind of, captured just how mean people can be as well like people can be mean and people say shit but also I like I, one thing I will say I like the Liz and Charlie relationship and that you know sometimes like the most harsh like jokes said about you are done by your mates because they're your friends and it's like there is like a understanding there that you know there's a bit where she kind of goes she starts he's trying to go backwards and she starts going boop boop and I feel like it's cruel, but that feels like very much about their friendship and that they're allowed to do that. It's like, it's, it's like that, um, it's like, you know, in Mean Girls where, uh, where Damien's like, hey, it's only okay when we say it, you know, like when I, when, or like, <laughs> yeah. what's her face says it about Damien. He's like, he's going, hey, it's only okay. Too gay to function. It's like, it's only okay when I say it. Um, and I think that's the kind of friendship that's shown. I suppose then talking about a bit more about the, I suppose the production designers, obviously it takes place pretty much in this one place, which obviously works well. How do you think the isolated set taking place in one location of Charlie's apartment um, added to the story? And I suppose you're kind of getting lost into that world. I'm on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it puts you right in the headspace of Charlie and you get to understand his routine. Um, So that absolutely works for the story. There were times where it felt a little bit stagey, um, but the pros outweighed the con for me in that regard. I loved the production design in this because I felt like, as an owner of a depression cave, it's a very, very realistic depiction of of a depression cave because you can see that the house used to be really nice. Like, there are paintings on the wall. There's these gorgeous little, like, bits and pieces all around the house but there are like these layers of decay to it and the layers of mess and it felt very naturally built up like I thought yeah I thought that was beautifully done and it did make up for whatever confines there were in in just keeping the camera within this space yeah yeah I I I I thought that worked well and as you said even like the kind of kind of gray tones the lighting of it 
it was all very dank and you were depressed and you really, it was like a representation of Charlie's kind of fundamental depression of life and that, you know, but then a little light, when the light comes in for a window, that's his little hope. Um, anything else we wanted to add before we wrap it up? I mean, we can talk about it, but I hated the ending. <laughs> I think I was, I was like veering towards the like this for a lot of the movie. And then I think the ending, and I know this is very Darren Aronofsky way to do it, but the ending is too like spiritually saccharine for me that I was like, what is, I don't know, what is this about? <laughs> but I know we can't say anything, but. I'm just putting it out there. Didn't like the ending. When wh- where can we read the spoiler piece, Clarice? Um, I don't know. Come to my house and I'll tell you. <laughs> Come to her her dank cave. <laughs> Come to my depression cave and I'll tell you. <laughs> so this is in cinemas. Uh, you can screen it, but do you want to stream it or do you want to skip it, Clarice? Oh, I'm going to say stream um, with the caveat that I'm on you cover this already, but Brendan Fraser's performance is so beautiful that that would almost push it to a screen, but maybe a stream. I'm sorry, Brendan. (laughs) (laughs) I'm also going to co-sign that and say stream. I'm going to say screen. Um... Because, yeah, I I have to say, I had a real visceral reaction. It's probably a lot personal in my own experience that I kind of saw reflected. Um, I did find some of it a bit dehumanizing. Um, but I think overall, for me, like the pros outweigh the cons. So I'm going to say screen. From a knock at the front door of an apartment to the knock at the door of a cabin. This is knock at a cabin. Hi there. Can I talk to you for a little bit? You have to come inside right now. There were four of them. What do we say? You shouldn't make things up when we're talking about... Can you open the door, please? They're breaking in! Fuck you, baby. We're not here to hurt you, but you have to stay here in the cabin with us. Families throughout history have been chosen to make this decision. Your family must choose to willingly sacrifice one of the three of you to prevent the apocalypse. We're not sacrificing anyone. For every no you give us, hundreds of thousands of people are going to die. Knock, knock. Who's there? (laughs) It's the... It's the who? It's the end of the world as we know it. (laughs) (laughs) While vacationing at a remote cabin, a family of three is suddenly held hostage by four strangers who demand they sacrifice one of their own to avert the apocalypse. It is based on the 2018 novel The Cabin at the End of the World by Paul G. Tremblay. This is directed by M. Night Shyamalan, who wrote the screenplay from an initial draft by Steve Desmond and Michael Sherman. 
and it stars Dave Bautista, Jonathan Groff, Ben Aldridge, Nikki Amukabird, Kristen Kree, Abby Quinn, and Rupert Grint of Harry Potter fame. Can I just say, I looked this up so we can all confirm this. Mm-hmm. Poor G. Tremblay, not Jacob Tremblay's dad. <laughs> I did have to Google that. <laughs> Thank Different you guy. for that very important knowledge. Uh, <laughs> uh, so we started off the whale chat by asking where we stood on Aronofsky. So I'm going to start off this chat by asking where we all stand on M. Night Shyamalan. Hannah Flint. Shyamalan over here. <laughs> Love the guy. Mm. Clarice. Um, the village absolutely slaps, although I tend to turn it off before the ending. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> but the everything before the ending, sublime. Um, <laughs> I mostly like his stuff. I, yeah, I struggle with the endings quite a lot because I don't like over-explained things and he really loves to he really loves to tell me that it's the government or a test experiment or scientists or something and i just have to be honest i don't care (laughs) but i appreciate it and also i love that he's from philadelphia yeah (laughs) interesting yeah uh i am a Shyamalan fan he can be a little bit hit and miss sometimes but when he hits it is often very good. Uh, Unbreakable is still my favorite Shyamalan film after watching this, but I really liked this. Uh, really had a good time. Were you surprised at how straightforward this was in comparison to some of Shyamalan's other work? And how do you feel that benefited the story? Or do you feel it benefited the story, Hannah? Yeah, I was, I mean, he he doesn't think he's the twist guy, but he is the twist guy, right? And I'm sorry yeah. to, to spoil it, but, you know, there isn't a twist. And I, I, I don't think that's a spoiler. I think actually what I like about it is um, it's just so powerful enough that actually it's a very simple, it's a, such a simple uh, conundrum, ultimatum that's, that people have faced. And it becomes this very much like a human story of like, what would you do? Like this thing, it's like a philosophical question. And basically what would you do if it was a choice between the people that you loved and the rest of the world? And I think that's so simple, such a simple question. And I think it's a testament to the performances, the writing and the tightness of this kind of story that even though it's what, like two hours, maybe is it two hours? You kind of, you're invested in it all, yeah, you're invested with it all the way to the end and it's really quite powerful and moving. And yeah, I, 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 it goes to show that actually, you know, he, he can do things that are pretty like, once he's, you know, he can do things that are pretty like, not run of the mill, but he knows characters and I think he's Mm. got the direction down too. Mm. Agreed, agreed. I like the central conundrum. Clarice, what did you make of how he handled the tension uh, of this film? Uh, because it's slowly, slowly rising. And there's, there's a couple of moments where it really reaches very intense levels in a really good way uh, for me. Did you feel that coming through the screen at certain scenes? 
Mm, I think the nice thing about not having to worry about a twist, and there's no fucking it's the government doing a science experiment <laughs> the whole time, is that I had woods. the opportunity. <laughs> I see, I don't like Cabin in the Woods. So <laughs> there is a running theme. I hate movies that end with it's the government doing a science thing. It's my yeah. least favorite type of movie. But I think being able to strip that away, I know that I got to really reappreciate how good he is as like as a pure visual craftsman and storyteller like there is i think there is kind of a hitchcock thing to him that he's so confident with the camera that he can be really playful with it and there were so many cool shots in this like the way that the like camera was always zooming into people's faces and we get so close to Jonathan Groff's face while he's going through this very intense emotion (laughs) and like you could see up his nose (laughs) and I thought like you can't you have to be quite a ballsy filmmaker to do that and say I'm I'm gonna break a few conventions here because I understand the emotional effect of what a camera move can do. And I think that happens again and again and again in Knock at the Cabin. Um, and that's he's been doing that in all his movies. But I think that just that's the thing, going back, it just gets overshadowed so frequently. And this is a nice, like, you know, Shyamalan being like, remember who the fuck I am. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know? <laughs> it's so interesting. Before I uh, watched this film, I was talking with... Uh, a colleague about The Last of Us and about how The Last of Us is about the cost of love. And then I watched this movie, which I had no clue what it was about. And it's essentially about the same thing. Um, Save who you can. <laughs> indeed, indeed. And I, and I love that. And in this film, uh, there's a gay love story at the center of it, which I thought was brilliantly handled. What did you make of that relationship between Jonathan Groff and Ben Aldridge's characters and the backstory elements that are filled out gradually as the film progresses. Yeah, I, I, what I like about it is that it's somewhat incidental. Um, of course, it informs a lot of their characters and as we go along, but I like the slow releasing quality of this film where we're not given all the facts. You're kind of, this is what he's very good about. It's like, you're still kind of like, you don't have all the information. It can be quite frustrating. It's like, but wait, uh, we don't know this about this character. We don't need this thing. They're not giving anything away. And then I really enjoy the flashbacks. Again, we're like breadcrumbs where they weren't a lot, but they just, again, built character, built who these people are beyond. And and yeah, I mean, some people are talking a lot about, I feel like, again, talking about <laughs> The Last of Us, but that's another example where this is giving, you know, so often when we think of like gay romance, it's it's kind of, in I know obviously this is quite tragic and stuff but it's also you know biographical dramas you know gay you know gay rom-coms or whatever but to have this central couple in this film it you know it could have been a heterosexual couple they did it they could have reworked it but to make it first seem incidental but then also make sure that it's not just like tokenistic where it actually informs so much of their feelings and who they are on misconceptions and um I suppose um paranoia in certain situations you see how far they've come and then fundamentally the result of that is that all love every type of love is beautiful and and um that actually you know when people turn up you know because there's a I don't want to give that away but basically it just kind of says that (laughs) any form of family love 
whether you're heterosexual, whether you're gay, lesbian, or any, whatever your kind of background or sexuality or whatever, pure love doesn't see any of that. And I, and, and I think that's the beauty. That's the kind of, the, the kind of emotive core of this film, uh, which I thought was quite beautiful. And I love that they cast like gay actors to play, you know, yes. these, this, yes. these characters. More of that, please. More of that. Um, talking about performances that stand out. Dave Batista, my goodness. Um, the guy goes from strength to strength. I don't think it's even a little bit controversial anymore to say that he is the best wrestler turned actor that we've gotten. Sorry, Dwayne. Um, but this performance, I think he's perfectly cast because, yes, when you look at him, he is this big brute of a guy. But he is also a gentle giant, and, and both of those aspects are firmly on screen throughout this film, uh, which I think is great. And again, he just continues to go from strength to strength. Clarice, what did you make of Batista in this, and were there any were, and were there any other performances that stood out for you? Well, you know, Dave Batista's been like, "Oh, Drax is a really silly role," yeah. um, <laughs> and it's kind of stupid. I'm like, I kind of, I get where he, where he's coming from, um, but I think like the stuff that he showed in that performance that really comes up here, which is what he's really good at, is this sort of naivety. Um, I mean. I was reading the production notes for this and they kept calling him like quite childlike, which feels <laughs> maybe I don't know if he likes being called that. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, I think in his performances, like he is able to oscillate really quickly between like uh, something a little bit menacing and something a little bit untrustworthy. And also, yeah, like very, very sweet. There's a sweetness about him and a fragility and, um, it's so perfect for this role because the whole thing about Leonard is that he's a big question mark. All four of these strangers, they're just big walking question marks. And you spend the entire movie being like, he kind of kind of seems nice, but also he has a big ax. So <laughs> I don't know how I feel about this guy. Uh, and in terms of other performances, I mean, fuck, everyone was great. John the Groff, obviously always fantastic he was really giving like spring awakening jonathan groff in this movie (laughs) for everyone who's seen that stage show uh like very like very intense emotion um and he's really good at just like tearing his heart out and putting out on screen uh i thought ben aldridge as well was great as playing kind of the more protect like the more protective parental figure um and i really liked the contrast in between the two of them I thought that was really good. I say the little girl, though. I have to shout out uh, Christine Q. Oh, my God. She was sensational. She was just amazing um, all the way through. It's yeah. it, He's very good at finding good child stars, I would, I would say, M. Night. Absolutely. I see that, people. Uh. <laughs> except, except for the child that James McAvoy played in Split. I hate him. <laughs> <laughs> Man, oh yeah, no. I swear, like you know, I I said that I love Unbreakable, and I do. That film still holds up; it's incredible. And I know that Cleese is going to hate me for this, but I I really liked Split. So I was so pumped for Glass. I couldn't believe the end of Split. That final sort of scene where you see Bruce Willis, David Dan. I was like, what? It blew my mind. I didn't see it coming. I was pumped. 
Then Glass comes out, and I'm like, oh, it bummed me out. <laughs> I was not a fan of Glass. Uh, but I'm a fan of this movie, and it's time for our screen, stream, or skip recommendations on Knock at the Cabin. Should audiences knock, knock, knock on that door, Hannah? Uh, 100% knock on Heaven's door. I was going to do that as the original thing, but then I thought it'd be funny to do a knock-knock joke. Yeah. <laughs> Clarice. Uh, yes, green. But don't fucking watch Split. <laughs> I was wondering. That movie. You, you were about that movie to interrupt is my me. nemesis. <laughs> Clarice would it. rather you watch Avatar. <laughs> The last Genuinely, Airbender I would rather you watch Avatar The Last Airbender. And, like, I don't resent anyone involved for making it, but I also, if I could physically fight a movie, it would probably be split. <laughs> uh, Avatar, a movie that just crossed the two billion marks somehow uh, this week. I That's just, a different I, Avatar, though. This is getting our avatars confused. <laughs> Could you imagine if Avatar I, I Last just... Ever Ender was like, beat Avatar? And then, like, James Cameron had to say a thank you to say congratulations to M. Night. <laughs> <laughs> I am hoping that if, if Avatar 2 beats Avatar, I hope that he, you know, in the tradition of getting out yeah. an ad in Variety, I hope James Cameron goes, congratulations, James Cameron. I hope he does that. <laughs> uh, he probably would, you know. Um, there aren't really any saints in Knock at the Cabin. But there's a saint in the title of the next film, Saint Omar. Vraiment emballé par ton projet. Ça avance, ton nouveau roman. Savez-vous pourquoi vous avez tué votre fille Je ne sais pas. J'espère que ce procès pourra me l'apprendre. Okay, so Saint-Omer, Rama, a literature professor and novelist, travels from Paris to Saint-Omer to observe the trial of Lawrence Coley and write about the case. Coley is a student and Senegalese immigrant accused of leaving her 15-month altar on a beach to be swept away by the tide in Burke. As she learns more about Coley's life and the isolation Coley experienced from her family and society while living in France, Rama becomes increasingly anxious about her own life and pregnancy. Uh, directed and co-written by Alice Diop with Amrita David and Marie Ndiaye, it stars Keja Kagame and Guslagi Malanda. Um, so, uh, where to start on this? As, you know, this is a courtroom drama. Uh, uh, what, uh, where, do you, where does this sit on a, on a scale of courtroom kind of antics for you? Because when I think of courtroom uh, dramas, I think of um, a, a few good men. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, but I suppose, uh, how, how do you think this handles uh, the subject? Because it's very fraught subject matter, but I suppose it's actually quite, um, it's not as, uh, I would say, uh, heightened or dramatic as our good friend uh, Aaron Sorkin's uh, flavour <laughs> of court proceedings. <laughs> Look, mm. Hannah, clearly, you can't handle the truth. Um, <laughs> I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Oh, my God. It's one of, actually, it's, uh, can I just say, <laughs> that is one of the greatest courtroom monologues ever oh, kind yeah, of written. 100%. Absolutely adored it. Absolutely adored it. 100%. But I'm on. You want me on that wall. You need me on that wall. <gasps> well, we, can just, you, we can just do a call right now. <laughs> you should be saying thank you. <laughs> um, anyway. Right, enough of you good men. Let's talk about Saint-Omer. 
So it's interesting that you say it's a courtroom drama. You are right, but I feel like that was part of the issue with my reaction to the film in terms of... Okay, that doesn't make sense. So it's interesting that you say it's a courtroom drama, which you're absolutely 100% right it is. Um, And I love courtroom dramas. This isn't your typical courtroom drama, though. And I feel like part of the reason I had the reaction to the film that I did was because of how I was watching it. This film intentionally keeps many details from the audience. It's very opaque in that way. And for me, it took a while for me to really grasp what it was doing in that regard and how different that was to your typical courtroom drama. So I, it, this is a film, I'm still the in the head here, this is a film that I admire, but I'm not as fully on board with as I'd like to be, and as I'm sure, uh, <laughs> and, and as I know others are, um, because this film has gotten an incredible reaction, and I wanted to sort of join the chorus, and I can't, I haven't found myself doing that, at least off of a first watch. Mm-hmm. So, did did you have the same reaction? Was it because it's it, it was? Did you find it hard to penetrate uh, as well, Clarice? Because it does. I suppose it withholds. In a way, I see it as. In as the audience, we're also part of like the jury. We're we're making a judgment on Lawrence Coley as well. It's asking. It's demanding us to. This is what the evidence that she's giving and what other people are giving. We're kind of in that courtroom with them and we're only getting the information that they're provided there's no other you know uh, we're solely relying on her uh, her uh, testimony the people around her um and in a way that puts you in Rama's perspective because she's the onlooker coming in to kind of learn about this woman and I think in a way that kind of worked for me because there is this sense of like trust like can you trust them can you believe them um what did you think Clarice? Well, I guess uh, the perspective is really interesting because it's, so it's based off a real court case and it's quite, the names have all been changed, um, but the details are quite close to truth. And Alice Diop, who uh, is normally a documentary maker, was present at the trial and, and was basically um, fulfilling the role of um, Rama Um so I think that kind of explains the the perspective of how we're looking at her. I mean, for me, <laughs> the second they mentioned Medea, I was like, oh, here we go. That's that's the movie. Who uh, She is a figure from Greek myth who um, is married to Jason of, you know, Jason of the Argonauts fame. And he abandoned her and she felt so alone and disrespected and um, betrayed by this man that in revenge she killed her, I think, two sons. Um, And there is this really, there is this feeling around Medea that she is like the most monstrous of women who could ever have lived. I think Jason says something like, you are a fucking monster to gods and men. He probably didn't say fucking, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) And I think... I think that, I mean, just because, you know, I love Greek myth and uh, I really locked onto that 
as an explanation for like what the movie is which is you know Laurence this woman who I think still in modern society the idea of killing your own child is something of such extreme monstrosity that that people like can't get a handle on it and and so the trial here is not to determine whether or not she's guilty she admits you know within the first five minutes yeah I did it um it's basically people begging her to say why why did you do it why did you what could drive you to to do such a a monstrous act and I I find that like I find that really interesting and I I think the movie has a certain curiosity about it but a very empathetic curiosity to ask the question of a what did drive her to do it and I you know I don't think it really answers the question but that's like that's what's good about it is we are allowed to answer it ourselves but also be like why are we like this about that specific crime like any other crime um you know murder pedophilia rape people do not care about as much as if you kill your own child um what is it societally about that 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 makes people view the the enactor as no longer human because people treat her as like she's a witch or like something there is this like air of fear around her that i found really interesting um so yeah i really like that i really like this movie mm-hmm. i think you're right it gets into kind of i suppose like the banality of evil like Mm. I love the way it's kind of I like the way that the film is kind of asking you especially as women I think is to empathize (laughs) it's really trying to say could you do it like are these enough reasons are is is the treatment is is sexism is um colonialism is like class are all these things you know especially when they brought in and it was such a when that when I realized that the the father was an old white dude that was like oh wow that was like a shock to me and I was like okay and it's interesting the way that the especially when you had the the prosecution and the defense and all playing these roles and it, I just love the way it kind of picked apart every sort of kind of argument for and against and it kind of keeps it so unreliable that you're kind of you're, it's so unstable, you don't know what to think. And I think that's the point of the whole film as well. It's like, there isn't a clear-cut answer. There isn't, it isn't black or white. It's not a binary. There's not, you know, we don't, people aren't born evil. There aren't these like mythic monsters and all this type of stuff. People are just real humans. And a lot about what's going on in our world and our upbringing and the inherited trauma and all that can play a function in how you navigate and your psychiatric, like your cycle psychology in certain situations um so yeah Amon I I suppose then you know again that I mean the performances how do you think how do you think they were I also just love the way that like again um I suppose going beyond the typical kind of stereotypes for black women I really enjoyed the fact that you had like Rama as this like literature professor but then also having um Lawrence being like a psychology story and there's a really great moment in it where what I I mean I don't think it's a spoiler but there's a suggestion that because she's an African woman why would she care about a European thinker or philosopher and it's like those and it was like one of those moments where you're just like oh and there we go and so how did you think that kind of Alice 
um, in writing kind of navigated the, the intersectionality of these women and being totally different, but also having so much in common as well. Yeah, I love that. I love that, Paul, as you say. Um, and I love how it's shown through the performances, like in the courtroom, it's just meaningful glances that they're exchanging, but you inherently understand what is being said in those dialogue-free moments between them. And that is all down to the incredible performances. Then when they are speaking, I mean, Guslanki Melanda on the stand is just absolutely incredible. Um, I was riveted watching her. Uh, And she's been, her character's been put through it all the way through. And the strength which she projects at points is felt, but as she goes through the journey of the film and she has to deal with everything being said, the degrees to which you can see how it's affecting her and impacting her, all of that comes through as well. I was really, really impressed and I'm excited to see what she's going to go on to do. Because I hadn't heard of her before this film. Is this weird for me to say that there's something of like the Anthony Hopkins Hannibal Lecter way she's so kind of like charismatic and charming in the way she speaks, but there's also something underneath. Not saying that she's like on that level, but do you know what I mean? That kind of, (laughs) but do you know what I mean? Because again, throughout the film, it's like she's an intellectual and stuff like that. It's just like, she is so hard to pin down and you can be kind of caught up in her world. But then, I mean, there's a brilliant moment where she glances to Rama. And that moment, it's like, oh, wait, what? Again, there's the unknowableness of it. Clarice, how do you feel? Like, was there anything that kind of took you by surprise by that performance or made you think of other things? Yeah, I mean, again, I, sorry, I go back to my dears. It's kind of a similar performance because I think there's a lot when someone is playing Medea, you are like it is kind of an empathetic sympathetic character um but there's just there's like an anger there's like an anger there but it's so buried that you spend the entire movie like looking for it and you're so desperate for Laurence to just like you know like have the moment of fuck you like this is why I did it this is it like that to just let everything out and she doesn't um and you know that as long as she doesn't she is going to remain that total unknowable mystery um and yeah it's like but i think the two of them are incredible because they don't really like they don't really emote that much with their face like it's very very pinned down but yeah, Azamon, as you said, whenever they look at each other, it's like an entire conversation is happening. And you're like, I get it. I get exactly what's happening between you two and why and why you see so much of each other in each other. And this idea that if these women had taken slightly different paths in their lives, they would have been in each other's positions. I found really interesting. Mm-hmm. And definitely so much subtext, so much like hanging in the air between certain interactions and especially that getting that kind of tension between mothers and daughters as well 
I mean, so many, so many great scenes where actually no words are even spoken, especially in certain flashback moments, I think, with Roma and her mother. The, the cinematography at Claire Mathon, um, there are some insanely good shots in this when Laurence is on the witness stand and they make her look so tiny. She's like a little tiny, tiny thing in the corner of the screen. And also she's like, she's wearing brown and the entire courtroom's brown. She just blends like bit she's like a floating head <laughs> on the witness stand and it's there's something so like potent and tragic about how tiny they make her look mm -hmm. i was just gonna say there's a closing speech um the closing argument that is really powerful um really really well written and really well delivered um and yeah that that has stuck with me uh days after watching the film. It's really, really good. Oh, 100%. I'm with you, Amon. Okay, so mm -hmm. uh, this is in cinemas. Uh, so we're going to go screen, stream or skip. Amon. I'm going to say screen. I'm not as in love with it as others are, as I say, but there, there, there's much to love about it. It's a screen. We'll take it. Clarice. <laughs> screen. I. This wasn't nominated for... What did France... Oh, it was France's official selection for Best International Film. Oh, but then the Academy didn't vote for it. Boo! <laughs> boo, 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 boo. Uh, screen from me. Okay, so... <clears throat> from Saint-Omer to some feline flair. <laughs> this is Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. Puss in Boots, you died. I have nine lives. And how many times have you died already? Uh, uh no. Boots and Boots doesn't need a spotter. Watch. Uh Watch. A guy always lands on his feet. Watch. You are down to your last life. Mama Luna's always on the lookout for a new lap cat. I am no lap cat. I am Pussy Boots. Not anymore. Yeah, you fucking with some wet ass pussy boots. <laughs> Bring a bucket and a mop for this wet ass pussy boots. Give me everything you got for this wet ass pussy boots. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> this is a family film. <laughs> I mean, there are some, you know, it's one of those we'll, ones we'll, where it's a we'll, family film, we'll but that old moments. <laughs> we'll get into it. Yeah. Pray for mercy from Puss in Boots. <laughs> so this is the sequel to the 2011 spin-off Puss in Boots. Did anyone watch that? I did. I actually watched it. Um, <laughs> I went to the cinema to watch it because I love Puss in Boots. <laughs> and it is also the sixth installment of the Shrek franchise. This is Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, in which Puss in Boots discovers that his passion for adventure has taken its toll when he learns that he's burnt through eight of his nine lives, just like me. Puss sets out on an epic epic adventure to find the mythical last wish and restore his nine lives. This is the sequel to the 2011 spin-off Puss in Boots, which I actually went to the cinema to see. I remember it well. <laughs> and the sixth installment in the Shrek franchise. The film is directed by Joel Crawford. Previously directed, do you remember The Crudes, A New Age? Loved it. Classic. So good. <laughs> Co-directed by uh, Januel Mercado and written by Paul Fisher and Tommy Swerdlow. The voice cast includes... <clears throat> There's a lot of people in this movie. 
Antonio Banderas, Salma Hayek, Javi Guillen, Florence Pugh, Olivia Coleman, Ray Winston, Samson Kao, who's in um Our Flag Means Death, which I've just started watching, John Mulaney, <laughs> Wang Namora, and Divine Joy Randolph. Uh, and so I spoke to Harvey Guillen, who plays the most adorable little dog in the world in this movie called Perito. Uh, and we did discuss plushies. <laughs> that was obviously a, a very important topic in the conversation. And I uh, also talked to him about how I went as Nadja from what we do in the shadows to Comic-Con. And I got the most compliments I've ever gotten in my entire life. And he did appreciate that. So please enjoy this interview with the lovely, wonderful, lovely Javi Guillen. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. Thanks for uh, having me. I want to say congratulations as well. I I loved this movie and I loved Perito so much. Like, I know he's for kids, but... <laughs> he's for, for everyone. Me, he's too. for everyone. Exactly. <laughs> and, and I think he really touches on a frustration that I have with the adult world, which is how much kindness is disrespected and distrusted. And there's a point where a character says, like, I no one is that nice of him. And I think, why not and I wondered if there was an aspect of that character that you connected with on that level it there is I I feel that yeah we're so jaded sometimes as a society where we think that no one can be that nice uh but there are nice people and maybe the reason they stop being nice is with people who make them <laughs> feel that they don't have to be <laughs> or they shouldn't be that nice and no one's that nice and um Perito is like someone that we should all aspire to be a good, genuine version of ourselves, just honest, pure, um, good hearted person. And I think we all have the ability to do that. It's just we just get jaded. Like we try to be good and it backfires. And just because it backfires with one person or one event or one scenario doesn't mean that it's going to happen again or that you should allow it to jade you. It should be like, no, I'm going to continue to be positive. I'm going to continue to be good. Because at the end of the day, you only have yourself to answer and to look in the mirror. And so if you're happy with what you see in the mirror and the person that you are, then you're doing it. And if you look in the mirror and you think, I'm just like everyone else, I'm, you know, jaded and mean and I'm not going to be good. And then that's a choice, too. Then you've made the choice and you made the choice with yourself. And I would just hope that everybody would make the choice to to just be a little bit kinder. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love that. I think the thing with the Shrek franchise for me and with, with Puss in Boots as well is... You know, it's a franchise that everybody knows and it's really well liked and well respected. But I think for like our specific generation, because I think I think we're the same age, uh, like it is hallowed ground. Like there is a Shrek's pizza in Manchester here in the UK that people are like people are obsessed with it obsessed with it it's like an iconic location in the UK and I wondered if you like how embedded are you in in Shrek meme culture or like the Shrek culture in general I mean I love it I mean I grew up watching Shrek and watching Puss in Boots and so it's so funny to get a reference when you get a meme from a friend and it connects to and it's, it's like a picture of just like you know donkey or shrek and it just has someone else's comment on top of it they can people make memes you know all the time and so the fact that it and it's so pop culture relevance that we can relate to it 
in any scenario. You can send me a meme of like having a bad day and it's like a picture of just like a wonky, like, you know, Pinocchio from <laughs> Shrek, you know, and just <laughs> knowing that. And it's I was like, I just think it's not going to be a good date. And you have a picture of like the gingerbread, you know, <laughs> like outside. Yeah. And, and it's just like those kind of things were like, I get it. You get the, you know, the meme and you get the reference. It's so crazy. And the Manchester pizza, I've got to go to Manchester and try this Shrek pizza now because it sounds amazing. <laughs> but yeah. I love that stuff. I love those things. And I love, you know, I just saw the Perrito plush doll and it blew my mind and I was like oh I was like I'm a toy like it just hit me that because of these you know films of course there's merchandise and of course there's toys and if you would have told you know six-year-old me that one day you're going to be part of the Puss in Boots world and you're going to be a toy I would have said what and uh (laughs) and then asked you if I could get one from you because I assume you would have one and yeah (laughs) yeah yeah I mean that actually something that really interests me about the casting process is before you say yes to a project uh like this are you shown concept art of the character or do they just tell you like you're gonna be a dog you're gonna be really cute just trust us (laughs) (laughs) no I think when I first auditioned um, I auditioned first and then uh, met with the director and the producers at DreamWorks and there was no like visual I think they just gave me a, a description of the character and as a voice actor you have to take the description and you only have your your vocal cords to kind of convey the character you really can't rely on your physicality your facial expressions your mannerisms because no one cares they don't see you on camera it's you're just your voice that they hear and so to do a voice that could take you on a ride and show you those, you know, like highs and lows in his voice and and emotionally kind of pull out your heartstrings in the moments that it needs to be endearing and sweet is a challenge as a voice actor, as an actor in general. Um, but very challenging as an actor who's doing just voice because again, you only rely on that. And I auditioned and I and I, and I got the part. And eventually they show me concept of the art. And I was like, that's him. And they're like, yeah, that's him. And they show you like, you know, not complete it, but like black and white animation of it. And it's like a rough cut and how he moves and his facial expressions. And it just blew my mind. I was just like to see this come to life and me just adding the voice to it was just the cherry on top. Because it's so interesting, the thing you said about you can't rely on your body as an actor, because I think, like, uh, when I talk to actors a lot, they always talk about, like, oh, I imbued, like, animal aspects into this character, and I studied cat, like, jaguar videos for months. Did you watch, like, were you watching dog videos in the lead up to this? Because I feel like that would be a great excuse to hold myself up in my office, like mad <laughs> scientists, like for months, be like, I'm doing research. I'm just scrolling <laughs> through TikTok, like the Chihuahua hashtag on TikTok. I mean, were you, were you doing it's that worked. at all? <laughs> uh, what I did was I kind of, you know, went off the energy that uh, my sister has two dogs and one, they're complete opposites. And uh, Jax is very, like, calm and serene. And uh, Picasso is outgoing and big and like and always looking for the next thing. And what are you and what are you looking at? Am I looking at something? So like the idea that these characters are so different and they're both dogs, but I chose to like lean in more to like Picasso's mannerisms. So when I think of Perrito, I think of the of the mannerisms that I would see in front of me with you know my sister's dog, and I would say, what does that sound like? What does that sound like? What is the colors in his like intonations, like the diphthongs? What does it sound like when he's upset? When he's sad? What does it sound like when this dog is all these emotions and when I think that way that's when it comes out because I'm envisioning that energy 
but rolled up into an actual speaking <laughs> vessel. And this is what it comes out as. And that's what we found the voice of Perrito. Yeah, this one, this one thing I found really, really funny. And I won't say what the context is because I don't want to spoil it. But where Perito just like unleashes a hailstorm of expletives. <laughs> and <laughs> I wanted to ask, because obviously they're beeped out in the movie because it's a kid's movie. But like, were you allowed to just, just go off <laughs> yeah, in the recording I... booth? And you have to, to set up for the viewers who are listening, uh, the, the, what's happening in the scenario is that uh, he feels that he's part of the, the gang, right? And he's caught in the middle of where two people are having an argument and they're going back and forth and they're going back and, and using very harsh words. At that point, not as harsh, you know, but they're just cutting words and uh and he thinks they're just riffing and like oh this is what friends do they just go out because he's never had a group of friends he's never had a group of people who uh, let him in on the joke and so he's like oh i'm part of the group and he's like okay let me try let me try and he wants to try see if he can keep up with them and boy does he keep up he just goes off on a rant but in his it's all coming from a good place of just fun but they bleep it out obviously which makes it for a hilarious scene because every other word is bleeped out and then the people <laughs> that scene are looking at him like where did that come from and it's like well you guys are doing it i'm just having fun with you guys you know but he's such like a good-hearted person that you can't you would never take those words seriously he's just going off you know it's just for fun yeah no i was like i i kind of want to know but i also don't want to know because i don't want to ruin the purity of the parent. <laughs> <laughs> they let me go I mean, but... full they're like just say what you want and i was like oh okay and we had to do the like i did i think we did one take where it was like four minutes straight of just back to back and just like doo, 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 beep, 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 beep. and also you beep, beep, and beep, beep. and just like every other word was beeped and obviously beeped in the movie but in the room it's not because you're just saying it you know <laughs> and so you're just saying these words through your headphones and you're just like non-stop and the director's like yeah that's good <laughs> you're going keep going that's good <laughs> I mean, before I wrap up, I've I've got to ask about what we do in the shadows because I love the show so much. Ever since it started airing, I have gotten constant Nadja comparisons, so I feel very close to it. Yeah, <laughs> I went to yeah, I went to a Comic Con like recently, and I went as her. I was mostly in my own wardrobe, and I have never been complimented more in my life. So, like, thank you to everybody <laughs> what we do in the shadows for that. Uh, but I wanted to ask because you you I saw that you recently wrapped filming for season five. And obviously, I don't want to ask anything spoilery from you, but we know that season four was such a, a big season for Guillermo. I mean, he had that beautiful coming out scene. And I feel like culturally, with a lot of stories, like weirdly, we see that as the conclusion of the story when it's really only the beginning. And so what's it been like actually being able to like explore the next chapter and, and really see him like just be at his most comfortable with himself? I mean, I think it's been such a great journey for him because Guillermo is not who we met in season one. And he's definitely not who we will be introduced next season. You know, it's just we all evolve. And because he is the only human in the show, we forget that uh, the trajectory of our story, it changes every day. And, you know, you are not who you were yesterday and, and you won't be tomorrow who you are today. And just like that trajectory alone just makes for good storytelling. And yet, and I've been lucky enough that the writers are so great and generous and wonderful to write this for Guillermo, where he came from a servant, basically to finding out that he wants to be a vampire. He's been wanting to be a vampire at that point for over 10 years. 
and he's also a Van Helsing and it's in his blood and so what's that gonna do and then we lead up to where he is spiraling because he can't he doesn't spend time with his family because he's committed to his chosen family he hasn't been honest with himself he finally comes out uh to his family because the chosen family uh, and his biological family are about to attack each other and he uses his sexuality as the buffer to please don't hurt nausea because I love her, even though she treats him like, you know, crap sometimes. He does love her. He loves her. And he's part of his chosen family. And his biologic family is is literally born to kill vampires. <laughs> they are made to kill vampires. And this is the weirdest situation to be in. But it was a really great moment for him to come out last year. And what came out of that was people were very supportive. And I had, you know, uh, someone came to a con that I was at. Uh, and they were in their 50s. And they said, I watched the episode, I'm a big fan. And you know what? I was finally honest with myself. And they came out. They came out oh, at that age. And I was like, God. wow. I was like, and I felt for them. And I felt for, but then I thought, you know, when you come out, you're coming out for someone else because you know who you are, but you're coming out for someone mm. else to make them feel comfortable or to let them in. And it shouldn't be called coming out. You let someone in. I'm letting you in. I'm I'm deciding and making a choice to let you in on who I am. And he finally let people in because he always knew who he was, but he didn't feel uh, the time was right or didn't feel comf confident enough to come out. And he finally let them in. So we should probably change that wording. Like when someone earns your trust and you feel comfortable enough to let them in, the time is right. There's no expiration date to come out or let people in. It's when you feel the time is right. Yeah, that is an incredible point that I've never really thought about it in that way before and you're so right uh and I I just had I mean it's I, that was so beautiful I was like don't want to move on from it but I have to <laughs> um uh, but I, I wanted to kind of circle back because I, I I wanted to ask about improv because uh you know it's obviously such a huge part of what we do in the shadows but with voice work it must be really different because I know for the most part, actors are not in the room with each other. You're kind of isolated and you're trying to build a rapport with a person who's not there. I mean, what was that? Were you allowed to, or do you have space for a lot of improv or were you, I, what's that? I'm just very curious about the whole process with improv in animated movies. I mean, we we have a little bit of room for improv. I think when we're finding the character early on, it's the moment to like play and like, you know, try a bit of things. And uh, with our director, who was so wonderful and generous and who is also, you know, a fan of what we do in the shadows. And we talked about that and how we improvise on the show. And I think sometimes when you improvise, you find what makes it feel organic and makes it feel real. And I think you're more drawn to what feels natural. And so unless we're doing like Shakespeare and you're like, we got to kind of stick to the book, you know, <laughs> kind of like <laughs> stick to the book there. Um, but when you're doing something that's a comedy, it if you have wiggle room for improv, it makes it just that more organic and better, you know? And so we were playing with a little bit of some of the stuff that he said and some of the things that uh, he kind of threw in as like a last minute addition. I, I had like a quick little ad lib at the end. Um, they were like, that's funny, let's do it again. So they would go back and record that in the way they wanted, but that was a funny joke or that was a funny thing. But for the most part, the script was already set and that was ready to go. So to even give the opportunity to improvise was a big honor. So it was a privilege. Yeah, and, and congratulations. I've got to head off, but I loved this. I'm so excited for what you're doing next. I'm a big fan. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much.
Thanks. I have to catch your Naja <laughs> next time day. I'm in Manchester. <laughs> yes. Yes. I will come and I will say hi. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Take care. I love how your eyes were closed. <laughs> you were really into You're like, I love him. I was just, I was, I was mentally revisiting. The, I was mentally revisiting it. Uh, okay. So I feel like we don't need to do the, are you a Shrek fan? Because we're all millennials. So the answer is obviously. Somebody yes. once told me the world is gonna roll me. I ain't the sharpest tool in the shed. Wait, bangers. Oh, I'll tell you guys now, in case you don't listen to the interview, I did tell Harvey about Shrek's Pizza in Manchester. I don't know if you know about this. You don't no. know about Shrek's Pizza? Okay, no. Google it after. It's incredible. <laughs> um, So, and I don't know if you guys did watch 2011's Puss in Boots, because I did. Um, But I want to ask, Amon, I mean, just in terms of we are now in history the shrek franchise was in 2001 it's quite a long time it's quite a long time ago like is there a reason to return to puss in boots is there a reason to return to this character does it feel familiar to the shrek franchise or does it feel like we're doing something very different here feels like both feels like both there's definitely uh some familiar stuff for shrek lovers like i have not seen the 2011 Puss in Boots. I have for seen... shame. <laughs> <laughs> if I have, I can't remember watching it. Um, oh, but... um, there was the egg Humpty Dumpty. You remember Humpty Dumpty was the villain? Does no one remember? Okay, this? I'm getting some vague memories. He was voiced by Zach Galifianakis. <laughs> that sounds vaguely familiar. Maybe I have. I went to it, the cinema. It, I was it, very it, excited. It, 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 it didn't linger in the mind clearly. Um, but the Shrek movies, I do have a soft spot for. And I remember seeing Shrek 2, which is the film that introduced Puss in Boots. And there's definitely, like, it's the same character. And you can sort of, you know, sort of feel that come through the screen. But there is some really interesting stuff going on in this movie that I was unprepared for. I, I, I had heard, like, really good things about Puss in Boots. I was unprepared for how good this movie is and how... You mentioned it, how adult this movie was at points. It starts off very fun and enjoyable and energetic and has all the elements that you would expect from a family kids' film in bed to commas like this. But there is the introduction of a character about 20 minutes in as the stakes of the story really begin to ramp up that really... I had not seen, I did not expect from the Shrek franchise. And I was really, really impressed by it. I'm trying to talk about it because I don't want to spoil too much, but it really, it changed the whole game of the movie for me um, in a really cool way. And it still has all of the family fun elements that you would expect, um, but all the more adult stuff really enhances the movie. It'll probably go over most kids' heads, but I lapped it up like it was, you know, a cat lapping up milk. I, I, I freaking, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna come out and say it right now. This, and bear in mind, we're recording this on January 31st, so it's early days yet, but this is the best film that I've seen so far this year. I freaking loved it. 
It's not for me for you to for me to hear you say that though, because Shrek is a is a franchise based on fairy tales, right? And mm-hmm. children's fairy tales has always been a way for um, adults to talk to talk to children about tough things. Um, you know, um, <clears throat> they're fables. They're the best way for people to understand life and death. You know, family and all these things. So for me, this yeah. film is not surprising that it kind of tackles some heavy duty stuff. Um, mm-hmm. that's always been the case. And I think that's what the power of this film is, you know, because if you think about it, even like, you know, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs or, you know, Sleeping mm-hmm. Beauty, right? There's all this element, dead moms and all this type of thing. So the, 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 the kind of, I suppose, the motivation of this film, I would say is, you know, making the most of our lives and not taking life for granted, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I suppose the idea that grass is always greener and stuff like that, it kind of fundamental things I think are embedded in most fairy st- fairy tales and children's stories. Um, mm-hmm. I, one thing I like about this film is that I'm really sorry, Clarice. I can't even remember if I've seen the other Puss in Boots at all. <laughs> I, I, I probably have. I probably have seen it. But what I like about this film is that you don't have to have seen it to mm-hmm. enjoy the story to get along with it. Right? It's very much. <clears throat> bit of background, bit of backstory, but enough to kind of like set you up. You know, you know when Kitty Softpaws comes in. Oh, there's history there, but it doesn't have to explain it. You know, and it has a few little references in there for fans who know it back to front. Um, but I think that's 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 what I think is good about a franchise film, especially one that comes you know ten years after the last one. Can it stand up on its own? And I think this film does. Hmm. I kind of sort of agree with both of you. I think there are parts of this film that kids will very much enjoy and can understand and be attached to and moved by. I think there are parts of this movie that feel very tailor-made for the original people who watch Shrek who are now, I guess, our age. I would say, like, late 20s, early 30s. Mm. Um, I mean, literally, the story is about how Puss in Boots is experiencing burnout, so he, like, goes into a reclusive depression era, grows a beard... (laughs) gets very mm-hmm. melancholy uh i feel like kids are not really gonna understand that <laughs> but the balance is the balance is there and i think another thing that feels perhaps more tailor-made for us is the animation style i mean amon it's doing the spider-verse thing i think we can just call Ooh. it that <laughs> oh yes 2d and 3d mix it up Honestly, I just love how Spider-Verse has changed the game. I keep saying that. I think it might be my new saying, Hannah. Um, Changed the game for animation. Um, You can see in so many things how they've been inspired by the film. Like Arcane, really great Netflix animated series. If you have not watched that, go and do that. Very Spider-Verse influenced. I haven't seen it yet because I'm a dummy, but I really want to see Intergalactic. And a lot of the visuals I see from that, mm. very Spider-Verse influenced. Same thing with this. And the action sequences, when it kicks into high gear, they are really something to behold. They're really great. The mm. first 15 minutes of this movie, the animation, there's so much creativity and ingenuity going on. I was really, really impressed. Um, and then you pair it with everything else that's going on. I mentioned at the top this song <laughs> in the first like uh, few minutes after sort of the opening uh, thing uh, 
setting up the wishing star, which is a big thing in the movie. Uh, you, you, so they get in, reintroduced to Puss in Boots, and he's got this song, uh, Favorite Sing Fearless it. Hero. <laughs> Sing it. <laughs> Who is your favorite fearless hero? Who is your favorite? It goes out. It is fantastic. Let's ask Boots. <laughs> <laughs> it is so catchy. There's one moment in the first 10 minutes which just spoke directly to me as a video editor, a retired video editor. They timed the sword play to the beat of that track. I was in heaven. I was like, this is great. This is awesome. It's, it was so, so me. I absolutely loved that part. Um, but yeah, uh, the, the animation is fantastic and it's going to be really interesting. Obviously, Spider-Verse sequel is coming out, uh, later this year. I feel like they're going to want to up their game again, seeing as now so many people have upped their game to a similar sort of level. And I'm, intru- and I'm very interested to see sort of what they're going to do with that. But yeah, I, I really love it. I will say, though, I know obviously it's very clear Spider-Verse kind of influence, but there were some things about it that also reminded me of when I used to watch, like, Pokemon or, like, some of the anime stuff, that kind of rushing, Mm -hmm. that kind of, like, um, you know, where the air changes shape and the kind of darts and stuff like that. And I would actually say that before Spider-Verse, that stuff was around, that that's kind of lent from that sort of kind of dynamic way of the kind of this landscape changing when you're doing a fast movement or an attack. And so that definitely, I felt like was at play as well. Mm. Mm. I feel like let's wrap it up with one more section about, let's combo the characters and the performances. I mean, there's a lot of famous people in this movie. (laughs) Uh, I mean, we've got Antonio Banderas and Salma Hayek, uh, back again from 2011 movie that you didn't see <laughs> or don't remember. Uh, and also, I was very obsessed with the El Mariachi movies growing up. <laughs> so to me, like the Puss in Boots movies have been like the big reunion <laughs> for Selma and Antonio. Uh, and I feel like they've got exactly the same chemistry that they do in those movies, and that really pleased me. Mm. But Hannah, I mean, Florence Pugh, Olivia Coleman, I mean, what were the standouts for you? I mean, Antonio. I mean, he the way he has that growl, <laughs> that huskiness, it's like, oh, it's so beautiful. Um, love Salma, of course. For ages, I was like, is that Nathan Lane? But it was John Mulaney. Uh, <laughs> um, I would say I really liked Samson Ko and Olivia Coleman and Ray Winston. I could not place that it was Florence Pugh. I was like, who is this person? I could not. <laughs> so maybe it was a, but I, I really, uh, I don't know. I, I thought I was good. And obviously Harvey's so cute. Uh, yeah, I think the voice. I think there's something about voice performances that got the dynamism, but also have that the character, like have that heightened, that kind of exaggeration of it. And I, I really enjoyed. I really enjoyed that uh, oh. too. <laughs> this is so interesting to me. You're correct with everything you just had, said, Hannah, but you have not mentioned the MVP voice of this entire film and Jadine. the MVP character of the film. And for the purposes of this discussion, I'm going to call him the Big Bad Wolf. Wagner Mora is yeah. incredible in this film. And that character, I loved what they were doing with him. I don't want to get into it too deeply because I don't want to spoil it. Um, because when it was truly revealed who the character was, I was like, oh, they're going there. And again, for me... It was real, it was was real like, no country for old men. I was like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was 
it was not what I expected going into this movie, but he really enhanced things for me in a big way. And the fear which he generated felt palpable, not just for sort of puss, but for sort of multiple other characters on screen. When he comes onto the scene, he leaves an impact. And a lot of that is through very, very powerfully generated uh, voice work. I thought that he was incredible, uh, but I completely agree with it, that Antonio Banderas is always cool to see it. I was just saying last week how big of a fan of Zora I am. Um, and there's a lot of Zora's, there's, there's a lot of Zora's stylings in Puss and Boots, which is always cool to see. <laughs> Even to the, you know, cast peas onto people and stuff. It's great. <laughs> oh, I don't know who did the voice for the Jiminy Cricket character, but I love that it was Jimmy Stewart. Oh, I love great. the Jimmy Stewart of it all. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're a monster. <laughs> I swear, it was Kevin McCann, who's actually the story supervisor uh, on the movie, who was doing temp voice work. <laughs> it was like, it's wonderful it was so life, cute. I'm obsessed with him. I think he was, apart from Harvey, he was my standout voice mm-hmm. performance. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that brings us to our screen stream or skip for Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. Amon. It's a screen. Watch me if you dare. <laughs> Hannah, and you can also do a Puss in Boots impression. Uh, screen. Um. Uh, where did you hear that name? <laughs> that was a that was a Where reference is... for the film. Do you know? I'm also a screen. I don't remember. I watched it. I didn't want to. You know what? I couldn't. I do because I did I also <laughs> didn't want to like say the the, what, the name because it would ruin this film. That was a plot spoiler. So right. you'll get it. Go watch the film. They come back here and be like, I understood that reference. <laughs> Captain America. I understood that reference. <laughs> I am also a screen. Um, I'll do the the eyes. Yeah. When he does the big eyes. I love it. Yeah. It's very favorite cute. film of the year so far. I I was shocked at how much I, I came out of the cinema bouncing. Like <laughs> I was shocked at how how much I loved and it. And I would just like to say, if any people who work for Puss in Boots, it's Warner Brothers, right? People who work for Warner Brothers. Maybe, I don't know, have any Perito plushes lying around. <laughs> I would not not adopt one. <laughs> He's Need so to talk cute. To DreamWorks. <laughs> DreamWorks, not Warner Brothers. <laughs> Fuck. Universal Pictures, I'm sorry. It was Universal <laughs> Pictures. Fuck. <laughs> Please don't take the Perito away from me. <laughs> Okay, I'm I'm latching on to the fact that you said Warner Brothers. So speaking of Warner Brothers, uh, <laughs> let's get into some DC news in our hot take. Okay, guys, uh, some big hot news dropped today from James Garn and Peter Safran, who are the T- DC's chief. Creative people at DC Studios. Guess what, guys? We're getting some more superhero films. We're getting some more superhero TV shows. So we got some old faces and we got some new faces. So uh, rather than get into the list uh, of things, I want you. To, what what stood out for you, Amon, uh, on this this new lease of life for DC? <laughs> Uh, the biggest thing was the new Superman movie, which is going to kick off 
properly the new DCU on film. Um, I think it's great that we're getting a new Superman movie. I liked that when James Gunn did the announcement, the comic book which they showed to announce the Superman movie was Superman Man of Tomorrow, which is a fantastic comic book. I just want a Superman who feels like Superman when I watch him on screen. As good of an actor as Henry Cavill is, I never really got that sense um, watching his movies. And I don't put that on him. I put that more down on the writing and directing. It is what it is. Um, But I feel like if they do a Superman movie right, it will have a huge impact and it'll be a big deal. Um, Because I don't think in the modern era we've gotten that yet. I know that there are some who really like Man of Steel, I think there are film I think there are things in that film which they do well, but the really important things which they had to get right, they do not. Because for me anyway, Superman does not kill. And he killed in that first film and it was really hard for the DCU and for Superman to recover from that, in my opinion. So that was the biggest thing that stood out to me. Clarice? I mean this has been the worst day of my life because <laughs> wow, James Gunn said their Peacemaker season two is postponed with no promise of when it's coming. And this is the second time that <laughs> I've loved a comic book show and someone said there's going to be a season two and then they went fucking joking. There's no season two. Fuck you. <laughs> I thought it was really um, interesting when James Gunn actually said, and uh, to Clarice Lockery, uh, no, bitch, you ain't getting it. I thought that was a really weird thing to, to call you out in I that way. I thought it was a bit much. I thought it was a bit much. I thought it was a bit much. Where he said, there's going to be no Peacemaker season two and there's going to be no Moon Knight season two. So live with that. Um, but I don't know. The Wallace show does sound cool. So, <laughs> And I, the thing that I thought looked the coolest was the Creature Comforts animated show where it's like classic monsters, Frankenstein, and a sexy gill woman and weasel all coming together to do stuff. I That sounded really fun, and I am down for that, but I also can't live with no Peacemaker season two, and it's really not funny that you did that. <laughs> I think it was also really smart of Gunn and Safran to cordon off certain DC films into Elseworlds, um, which is something that I had suspected was in the works for a while. Um, so that would be Todd Phillips's Joker. That would be Matt Reeves's The Batman. It was confirmed that we're getting a sequel to that. Um, and there'll be, I, I guess, other projects which will fit under that umbrella. I feel like that is a nice way to still give those filmmakers that creative space to do what they want to do whilst also establishing their own shared continuity with DC on film, which The Flash is going to softly reboot when it comes out in a few months. Hmm. Personally, I was not excited about anything on this new announcement because I feel like we are once again retreading on the same heroic territory um, 
when there are so many other DC characters that they could be playing with. Like a Batman family film, fine, okay. But how many Batmans have we gone through now? Uh, Superman, okay. I mean, if they were gonna do like a Superman Red Sun, down with it, that would've been a cool, that would've been like, oh right, we're gonna really change the game, let's do something like a low, do you know what I mean, Elseworld, if you want an Elseworld thing. And and again, it's just repeating this, it's treading on the same track, like I don't, like Waller as a series, I don't know if I'm that excited about her that I've seen several times before and gonna be that sort of dynamic, I don't know. For me, you know, it didn't really, nothing really shouted at me that was like, oh wow, I'm very, I wanna get into this. I mean, I hope maybe they'll do, if they're gonna do a Batman and Robin, if they're gonna do the Damian Wayne, I hope at least they cast yeah. someone who's got like a bit of like Middle Eastern heritage on it. So they're gonna actually get into the fact that Ra's al Ghul is his grandfather, Talia al Ghul was like mixed mm. as well, but there we go. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I will say, like, you know, they definitely have the 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 big IPs there, your Batman, your Supermans. But there's a couple of stuff which they announced which they are trying to uh, sort of bring in some new people. The the, the animated show that Clarice mentioned is one of them. Uh, Swamp Thing, uh, that's going to be, I believe, a movie uh, that's going to sort of uh, end this first chapter of what they're calling the Gods and Monsters, Chapter 1. Uh, they got... Uh, TV show for Booster Gold coming up, which is a character that I think has a lot of potential. Ironically enough, when they brought him into Smallville for for, for an episode, uh, a show which I really enjoyed watching back in the day, it was actually a really strong episode. Um, and it showcased what could be done with that character on the small screen. So that could be one. Um, the Authority, which James Gunn described as his own passion project, that's something which... Um, not many fans have heard it. Like, I'm a big DC fan. I, I've not heard of the... But can I ask a question? So, Apart from Waller yeah. and the Wonder Woman t- film yeah. and TV series or whatever it's going to be, like, how many yeah. of these are, like, female-led <laughs> stories, right? How many of these... Are, and, and it's not just going to be, like, a woman as part of, like, a group that's mainly going to be men. I think that's what I find yeah. a bit boring about it. It's like, I, I'm so bored at this point in 2023 that when they're doing a full slate, that it still seems to be, let's do the same heroes the white heroes let's do them again and then let's like have you know obviously have Waller which is fine again established character but again we're not getting in where's the new female character female heroes or suit villains or what's coming out like where's my Gotham City Sirens basically (laughs) (laughs) I feel like there might be a few in Paradise Lost which is the show that's set on Themyscira no but I mean that's Wonder Woman that's like you've had Wonder Woman it's just retreading on old territory where's the newness they are well. Well, I think. Well, I think within the pilot, like I think they might focus on, or at least bring in Nubia, who, at one point, well, who who has been Wonder Woman in the, in in comics. I want Zatanna. Got a movie. <laughs> <laughs> they, they've, they've also got a Supergirl uh, movie that they're doing as well. Um, I know, but come uh, on, Supergirls again. We've had a Supergirl TV series, we've had a Supergirl movie. It's going to be a white woman, like. Again, where's the characters that we haven't seen before? That's what, you know, that's what I really liked about Marvel recently is that we're getting new characters that we've never seen before. And it feels like if you're going to do a bring new state, I get you've got to have some more people, but like, who else? Like, who's going to be exciting new characters? Who's going to be like, I don't know, rather than have to wait 10 years for Captain Marvel, who's going to be the Thor? Who's going to be the Captain America, right, of, of women characters? I find that just... You know, it, I feel like sometimes they do these things where it's going to be a group of people, but we all know it's going to be a male lead. It's going to have like one or two female characters and the rest it's going to be men. Everyone is going to be so skewed in one way and it's probably going to be very much white heavy as well. I don't know. That That's what I see these things and I feel like you're picking characters who basically have already been pretty established 
established also to be mostly white, mostly white male, and obviously white women. I don't know. How do you feel about? Because um, I don't know this character at all. Um, I think it's a guy, Blue Beetle. What's that character? Is that it? Sounds... Yeah, I know um, Harvey Gans in it. I'm excited for him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a Latin American character. Yeah, mm. Jaime Reyes uh, inherits the scarab and becomes the Blue Beetle. It's but also a scarab, eh? Pa- <laughs> scarab, yeah, where are they from? Thing? Where are they from? <laughs> who get, who doesn't get to play yeah. scarab again? <laughs> where's Doctor Fate? Where's um, Nazir? Where's where's um uh what's it? Khalid Nazir. <laughs> that's what we need. There we go. Um, yeah, uh, that could be interesting. Um, I need to see more before I get properly excited about that. But yeah, I, I'm intrigued, if not all the way excited yet, because I've been burned by DC a lot in the past. And I think this is the fourth time in, in the last decade where that they've outlined an eight to 10 year plan. So I just hope that this time they actually get to execute the full thing before it implodes and we have to start all over again, again, because uh, mm. I'm about done with that. Um, so yeah, fingers crossed. James Gunn, it's been a, a difficult uh, sort of transition, transition. <laughs> at times. I think it's fair to say, um, but now as we inch closer to what he was brought in to do and his vision, I hope that DC on film can have a rebirth because it deserves to stand alongside Marvel in terms of the best of what this super genre can offer for the last few years it hasn't been able to do that for the most part which has been a shame because i love these characters many people are we know what these characters are capable of when they're done right they have endured for tens of years for a reason and hopefully uh we're going to get to see why on screen in the coming years my fingers are crossed um so yeah here we go I just want to see Vigilante again. I'm so sad. <laughs> right, well, okay. So there we go. Some uh, hotty DC takeies. Uh, <laughs> thanks for those guys. And thank you for tuning in. Happy viewing by whatever medium is safest for you. Please subscribe, rate and review the podcast. It makes a difference. And tweet us any questions or hot takes at Fade to Black Pod on Twitter. You can find me at Hannah Flint or at Hannah Ernest Flint on Twitter and Instagram. I am at Clarice Lowe on Twitter and at Clarice Lockery on Instagram. And I didn't say, interesting discovery this week, uh, one of Oscar Isaac's very first on-screen roles in the movie Lenny the Wonder Dog, where he, about a dog that gets a brain chip in its brain and it becomes the Terminator, um, where he played a character called Doctor uh, Detective Fartman, is now available on Prime Video, so you're Detective welcome. Detective Fartman. <laughs> Wow. He's a detective fart man. He pours coffee on his dick. That's basically all he does. Wow. <laughs> if that isn't musty, what, a- what is? Humble beginnings! <laughs> <laughs> For one of the best actors of his generation. <laughs> I am at Amon Woman on Twitter and at Amon Woman on Instagram. Uh, I will not be the... T- <laughs> I was going to say, do you have any deep cuts <laughs> to share? <laughs> I'm off to go and watch Detective Fartman in action. That's what I'm going to do. Ah, there we go. Farting farewell, fart friends. (laughs) Uh, It's time to fade to black.